And now, Escaping the Drift, the show designed to get you from where you are to where you want to be. I'm John Gafford, and I have a knack for getting extraordinary achievers to drop their secrets to help you on a path to greatness. So stop drifting along, escape the drift, and it's time to start right now. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Escaping the Drift. Uh, Today, man, I got a good one for you. I got uh, one of my good, dear friends and just an incredible human being. I'm going to give him the best I can as far as an intro. So this is a guy that I will call, and I I was thinking about this last night. He is a member of one of the longest, contiguous, surviving alternative rock bands in America. I'm going to give him that. There's never been a drop-off. There's never been a pause. It's been continuous music making, continuous touring since the band came out in the 90s. He is the founder of what is quickly becoming the in vogue or best music festival in the greater Nashville area, the Pilgrims Festival. And he is a speaker and now an author. So yeah, I hate him in every single way you can possibly hate him. (laughs) But welcome to the podcast, guys. This is Kevin Griffin. Hey, Kevin, how are you, buddy? Man, it's so good to be here to see you and be on this. We're, we're going to escape the drift together. I can't wait. I, I'm in Boise, Idaho, um, and just giddy to be talking to you. I love that. How's the t- So you're out on tour with Better Than Ezra right now, your band. Yeah, yeah. Ez- Ezra's out on a tour. It's a summer tour. It's all on the West Coast and up along the northern part of the country. We end in Bangor, Maine. We're, we're touring with Train. Uh, we're doing a few shows are on, on our own, but mostly as amphitheaters with Train. Mostly it's amphitheaters. So, you yeah. know, you guys, you guys have been at this for a long time. I mean, we, we've been friends for, for 20 years and, and it's always hard when I have somebody that is, you know, such a good friend of mine that comes on because I, I try not to tell inside jokes and inside stories. So right. if I stop and digress with things, it's to make sure that everybody's kind of caught up with us. But talk to me about, let's go back to the early days. I always like to ask, and everybody likes to start out with, so what about your upbringing made you Kevin Griffin? Talk about growing up in House Griffin and what made you Kevin um, I like that. I like that question. You know, I grew up in a household. Um, it was, uh, great parents. Um, you know, my, it was a big sports family. My father was a, was a, uh, all American, uh, football player, uh, for university of Georgia played a little for the Redskins one year for the Redskins. Um, but he, so he kind of was the, uh, the, well, not kind of, he was the patriarch of the family and, and it was, uh, it was a, a, a family that, you know, where, where hard work was, was stressed. Um, but also for, you know, so I was always supported in the things I wanted to do, you know, and um, as long as, you know, I, I did it right. My father had a saying, he would always say, Kevin, when I did something half-assed as he would say it, he would say, Kevin, lazy man works twice as hard because <laughs> if you do it, if you don't do it right the first time, you got to do it again, you know? And, and so, and that, and, and that, it, that was kind of it instilled in me at an early age. I, it's funny, you know, my, my family, my, I guess my family just wanted me to just be happy. They weren't like, um, um, always pushing me to be better and, and, and achieve more. That wasn't the case, but I just had a thing, um, growing up uh, that I, w- I was just a self-starter you know i grew up in uh was born in atlanta then i grew up in a uh in what do, North- what, go ahead what do you think made you a self-starter why you, you know what it was um because i was born in atlanta uh and and we were living in buckhead and i was going to holy innocence and it was a very uh, it, it was, it was the beginnings of a privileged life. Then my dad's business, I went belly up and we moved to Northeast Louisiana to the poorest, the second poorest parish in Louisiana, which is saying a lot, brother, because what, what, what was that like? What was that like on you was, as a kid, man? When you go from that, cause I have a similar thing with that. We, we went from a beautiful home, uh, you know, my, my, my aunt was the headmaster at Galloway School in Sandy Springs Buckhead, which is the private school. People in the Atlanta area know, uh, know it, you know, country clubs and stuff, to we went to, uh, we, we, went, we lived in a trailer for about a year uh, on my aunt's property. And How old were you? you know, I, How old were you? I was a second grade, second or third grade. It, but it, I remember it, everything at that, at that age. Did you, do you feel like you experienced shame? Um, I know my parents, I know my parents, 
I, I was, it, it was, um, cause I had friends in Atlanta and suddenly we were hightailing it. We had to, you know, we got out of Atlanta, we started over. Um, it was an adventure for me, but I, I you know, and just you asking this, I've never thought about it, but I've, I've kind of always wanted to rise above my station. Um, you know, that, that are, are the hand that I was dealt, but I just had this fire maybe because so early in my life, I was, I was passionate about music from the earliest age, um, that it always drove me to want to be successful. And that wasn't just in music. It was in athletics. My brother was gifted. He, you know, he was getting a scholarship to Notre Dame. My father had done really well. I loved music, but I loved sports, but it wasn't my gift. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't like them. Uh, I was more the artistic type, John. Uh, <laughs> but I always, I always, you know, it, academically, you know, I was always uh, doing what I could to test into to different uh, classes to um, get it, get advanced placement, to do boys state in high school. No one ever pushed me like that, you know, like to apply for scholarships. My parents never said, Hey, why don't you apply for scholarships? I just did it on my own. Um, I think it was always wanted, wanting, wanting more. And, and, and um, do you think, now let me ask you a question. Do you think that you would have still had that fire to get that stuff done? Had, you would have maintained that, that silver spoon life in Buckhead. Do you think Man, that you would have you know, had the I've same fire? I've thought about that. You know, I've thought about a lot of those. Th I've thought about if that did kind of cast the die in me, this desire to get something back that maybe at an early age, I thought I lost, yeah. you know, I, in a lot of those moments, you know, I, after my freshman year in, in college at LSU and I, I got a scholarship, you know, it, which really didn't mean anything. It was a tuition scholarship, but back in the eighties, I think tuition per semester was like $1,200 for LSU. <laughs> but still, it was something. It's like five grand now, I think, or something stupid. You no, know, but, but, but after year one, you know, at LSU, I, I dug it, man. I, you know, I was in a fraternity. I was a president of my pledge class. And, but but I, I I wanted to go to film school. I always wanted things that were just out of my grasp. I, I, I applied to NYU. I went on my own dime to go interview uh, up at the Tisch School of Arts. And I got accepted. I got accepted to LSU, to, to NYU. I was going to, uh, but, but I was right on the cusp of, uh, with my parents' finances. Uh, I, I didn't qualify for financial aid. And my parents said, you've got a, you've got a tuition scholarship at LSU. We're not paying, we can't pay 28,000 a semester or, you know, at NYU. Um, so again, that's another thing when, when that didn't pan out for me, I was like, I'm going to come back at some point. I'm going to come back to this, you know, at some point, you know, I, so it was always been, you know, and look, many years later, about six years ago, I was an adjunct professor for a year at NYU at his <laughs> school of arts, yeah, you didn't, know, didn't go to so, school there, but so, I'm teaching. There you go. So one, one story of my life and I tell a lot of people is we all have these things we want, these, um, these goals. And usually it's a lot of things. And, and as a young person, you're like, how do I get, where do I start? Yeah. You know, where do, where do I get there? And I, I went through the same thing. And at one point I realized, okay, find that thing you're good at, do that and use that to accomplish those things. So if you can't do it through the front door, do it through the back door, come back around to it. Okay. You didn't get accepted to that school. You know what? Kick ass in this other realm. And then you'll come back, you know, in what being successful, in whatever else you do, and you'll get an honorary degree or you'll do a commencement address or something like that. And that's kind of been the story of my life that so I've let, luckily music has opened all these doors that have allowed these things that eluded me initially, maybe success, maybe a school, like or writing a book. You know, that kind of well, you know what I find super interesting, just something you said uh, a minute ago when you talked about, you went to LSU and you were president of your fraternity or your pledge class. You said that. Class, and, yeah. and, and, but here's the thing. Here's the point that I want to make about that is in my experience, and obviously my experience with, with artists is not nearly what yours is. In my experience with people that are heavily right-brained, heavily creative, heavily uh, have that gene to be brilliant artists as they do. The left side that, that has the drive 
is a lot of, it doesn't engage a lot of times. So you as somebody that like normally your guy with its heavily right brained doesn't aspire to be president of the, of of the pledge class. He just wants to kind of hang out and see where it goes. So my question is, is obviously just from that statement alone, I'm going to go ahead and color you an anomaly. And that's not, that's not a question, but I just think dealing with artists. So with the amount of artists that you deal with, how often do you see people that function at that level with both left and right brain? Because obviously you, I mean, look, pilgrimage is a business, right? A lot of this stuff is a, is a, is big business, but you're an amazing artist as well. So is that an, is that just me thinking that's an anomaly or is that real? uh, You know, what I have found is that a lot, it's, there's some truth to that, but it's also a myth. Okay. Uh, Some of the, uh, the most successful um, artists and they are, they are to their core. They are artistic people are also incredibly astute business people. Yeah. Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift is an entrepreneur. She kicks, she kicks ass. Um, uh, who, Paul McCartney. Yeah. Incredible, incredible business, business person. So would you say the people uh, at the top of the game all have that in common? Yeah, they do. They do. Okay. You know, um, so, so a lot of people and, and, and the irony is that because of that myth or because of that stereotype, which is, which is true in a lot of ways, a lot of musicians feel guilty um, or they have, uh, uh, they don't want to embrace the business part of what they do. And that ends up becoming their downfall because they, they enter into bad deals. They, they, do, they don't know, um, they, they don't know the business of their business. Um, so the Motown effect, as we should say, <laughs> the Motown, what effect. That, what the Motown effect, as we should call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so look, it's the music business. Yeah. You know, and what, and what most of those people that I mentioned realize is that music and artistry and business are not mutually exclusive. They can live together, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't have to compromise one or the other. If you, if you are an astute business person, you get a great deal. It doesn't mean that you can't be as precious a, of an artist as you want, as, as you want to be. You have to do that because it, it, that, because that is the thing that, so there, there are so many great, there were so many musicians that, and bands that were better than better than better than Ezra, songwriters that were better songwriter than me, but they quit because they couldn't make a living, or they made bad deals, and then they got bitter, and then they got cynical, and that's the kiss of death in any business is, is cynicism, you know. Um, yeah. But I was always, you know, and I felt guilty about it too. I was like, oh God, you know, I, you know, I, I, I never wanted to be a starving musician. I never harbored any romance about that. I wanted to be successful. You know, I, from the, you know, the earliest better than Ezra songs, I was copywriting my songs back in the day. You had to get a form PA from the, from the trademark, um, from the library of Congress. It was really arduous. Yeah. And I did all that shit. I, I entered all my songs to BMI. I, I learned how to do all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, even, you know, I gave my, after LSU, I graduated LSU and I was going to go to law school. I, I, my LSAT was good for three years. And I was like, I'm going to give better than Ezra three years. You know, See I got accepted to, 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 to BU, not, I, I got, I got accepted to BU, not BC, to George Washington, not Georgetown, you know, uh, uh, this <laughs> it's almost, a George school. Almost good enough schools. I mean, they're, they're great schools. Um, so I, I was going to give myself three years. Of course, those three years expired and I was still a bartender out in LA trying to make it, you know, and I did ultimately follow, you know, the, my passion and music. Um, but I was always driven and, and uh, wanted to, to be successful creatively and happy there, but also financially, you know, and yeah. that was, that's always been important to me. And, um, you know, and, and also evolving and pivoting and, and like, how do I get better? And, you know, and that's kind of really kind of with the book, you know, it's really the speeches I started doing seven years, seven years ago were really about falling on my face at a certain point after success and thinking about yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get to the book in a minute, but I, I, there's so much more, I think to this that I want to get to before there, because I think a lot of people, man, you know, there, there's two kinds of people. There's people that have had success and then there's yeah. people that have never had success. And sometimes 
it's easier to get going if you've never had success. You just got to change your habits, change what you're doing and get moving forward. But what's incredibly difficult is to go from having great success and then have it kind of fade away for a minute and have to go get it and bring it back. And I think you guys have been just the masters of that over the years of reinvention of staying with of, of evolving as you go along. And the book is immensely like that. But what I want to hear about first is that first bit of success. Like when, when good first hits and goes up, the skyrockets up and you guys are like, holy shit, we're going to make some money here. Like, what was that feeling like? It, it was, it was, um, it was exactly like you might think it was, you know, uh, this was the mid nineties. It was the heyday of the physical sales of albums when the labels were just crushing. They were making more money than they ever had because they re-released all the old catalogs on CDs. Everybody was buying them and we got to be right at the tail end of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the story of better than Ezra is hard work and grinding it out. We got, we, we got together in 1988 it wasn't until 1995, seven years later, that we were signed. We, the, you know, good, which became our will always be our biggest song, uh, was turned down in so many different um, uh, artist showcases where the where the label would come and watch us rehearse, you know, in a studio. And so we just kept, we just, we just didn't quit. You know, not quitting, perseverance. It's a cliche, but it, it is a, it is the bedrock of what I do. But when it finally happened, when we had a number one song at first on ninety nine X in Atlanta, and we signed our deal, deal on February fifth, nineteen ninety five, and that song exploded, and we were the number one band in the country for nine yeah. weeks with that song, and we were doing Letterman, Leno, Conan. Uh, the John Stewart show flying everywhere, headlining all these festivals, you know, shoulder to shoulder with Pearl Jam and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Bush and all these 90s, you know, stalwarts. It was amazing, you know, and and uh, and you know, I had such modest goals for my career. My initial goal was I just got to pay off my Discover card. <laughs> That's what I got to do. That was and, it. Just the Discover card. Anybody can relate. They still do it. But back in the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Discover prowled the waters of the colleges. Man, every room yeah. you were in, yeah. every room you were in on the bill, on the bulletin board, on the chalkboard, you know, to yeah. your right with, with said, you know, tutors and stuff. There was always a Discover card, <laughs> you know, no credit needed. I got I was 18,500 in debt at the end of that. And I was just like, I just got to pay off that bill. So I was able to do that and much, much more. I, I, I was, you know. I did something very smart. I had a good manager at the time and he said, you know, don't do a publishing deal. You've got a song that's doing it on your own. I was able to sign my first deal, an admin deal after I I already had a number one song. Mm. So it was already guaranteed that I was going to make a lot of money uh, on these three better than Ezra albums that I, that I I was the sole writer. So I I did a really good um, admin deal, meaning I never sold my publishing. I always just got a publishing company to collect money for me. So I was in, Starting off, I was in a really good position, um, but it was great, man. It, it was, you know, uh, doing award shows and and hanging out with 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 celebrities and all that stuff, all that fun stuff, decadence, you know, and and great and great times. Um, a few of those with you, <laughs> <laughs> one or two, um, one or two. What, what was that? Was that you know, a, you know, initial um, great success? Well, and it was it was an amazing ride, but. We ended up, you know, being like so many artists with very few exceptions. You have that initial success, yeah. you know, and then, it, then you have less um, unless you're cold player or a green. Well, well here's the, here's the question. Here's, here's the question. The reason I wanted to know what that felt like is because I wanted, you know, you can still see it, man. In, in, in any of us, I think when we talk about those pinnacle moments in whatever we do, you, you oh, can yeah. see it there, but you can't really understand the, the waking up in the morning and saying, okay, I'm going to go get it again when that success is not necessarily coming after that. And one of the things that I talk about all the time is, and, and this is, I just want your, want your perspective on this. Cause I talk about all the time, you've got to separate yourself, your being from what you do, because what you do may change several times. And if what you do becomes your identity, when there's a change either voluntarily or involuntarily, as it may be, that damages your ego so much. It's really, really hard to get off the mat. So yeah. even when you're doing well, you've got to separate. But with you, I mean, you're like 
what's going out is your heart. <laughs> it is you on yeah. the page. It is you on the radio. So how did you, when things slowed down, how did you focus on staying the course on, on, on doing what you're going to do and ultimately starting to pivot into songwriting, which you did? Well, great question, by the way. Um, so that first album came out cost it cost us eight thousand dollars sold about three million copies second album came out a year and a half later barely went gold sold half a million third album came out in 98 sold about one hundred eighty thousand. what what and what was many people's favorite album our creative Garden high peaks was that, Garden Garden Grow? was that record uh, yeah which yeah. which is you know artistically it's just a brilliant album it wasn't yeah. a, a hit uh commercially but in 2002 we were making our fourth album and I got that call um, that every most artists get, you know, it was from business affairs or it was from our, our manager and to tell us that Electra was not going to pick up the option for our fourth album. And then we were being, we were dropped yeah. and it was a gut punch for me, you know, in seven short years, I'd gone from getting signed to being a, a household name, you know, yeah. uh, in, in that era, um, having a lot of success, you know, all my, all my dreams and more suddenly it was, uh, I was just, I was in my thirties. I was in an unsigned band back in new Orleans in a band that was big in the prior century, you know, in the nineties. Yeah. And it was a really tough time. It was a blow to my ego for sure. And, um, at first I said, it didn't bother me, but it did. It, it crushed me. Um, and I considered like, you know, my ego was like, ah, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go to law school. You know, I thought about doing that or, or, or pivoting away from mm -hmm. music, but I realized I was like, no, no, I've got, I, I love what I do, but I've got to do it differently. If the label, if we were making label money, it was a label is just a bank, yeah. you know, and they want to mitigate their risk just like anybody else. And we weren't a good investment anymore. So I was like, okay, I'm going to continue doing music, but I've got to do things differently. And, you know, I, I go back to my dad, you know, uh, he always said to me, Kevin, nothing changes if nothing changes. Yeah. You know, so I, I realized I was like, okay, I'm going to continue in, in music, but I can't keep doing it the same way. And even then I started looking at my peers and this was the beginning of things, you know, I talk about, you know, in the book about embracing the success of your peers, which is very hard to do. And, and you know, it's the key to success in life is getting rid of your ego. Check your ego at the door. As yep. a friend says, my ego is not my amigo. Yep. Um, and so I started looking at my, I start, I, you know, even then Max Martin, that production team was crushing it with, with NSYNC and Britney Spears, you know, and, and, and Pharrell with the, um, the Neptunes, they were doing great. And so I started studying my peers, what they were doing, and, and they were collaborating. And then I started looking at different business, you know, the, 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 the classic Jack Welch book. And I was studying all these different um, business people, music people. And I started to see all these parallels and how they were doing their business and similarities and what people in music were doing for success and what people were doing in business for success. And that was my aha moment. And I realized that, whoa, um, I've got, I, 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 and it was a very fortuitous meeting, uh, with someone who changed my life. It was, a, it was a manager named Alan Kovac. He managed meatloaf and meatloaf, uh, in 2003 was at a studio with us. It was us, Justin Timberlake and meatloaf in this studio in Hollywood called Conway studios. And one morning Alan Kovac came up to me. And he said, Kevin, Alan Kovac, listen, Meat heard one of your songs and he wants you to co-write with him. And uh, Meat being Meatloaf. Yeah. And at first I was like, you know, uh, no, thank you. Because I'd always written songs myself. I yeah. never had collaborated. And I was a little scared. And I also like being the only writer because I was greedy. I, I like getting all the money. Um, but I was like, my, my, my dad's voice again, Kevin, nothing changes, nothing changes. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to collaborate and, and collaboration, working with others from that moment on, uh, it became the, the, the bedrock of, of what would change my life. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then evolving that, um, for sure. You know, it, it, you talk about collaborating and 
You know, I think one of the things in business that makes good business or, or whatever it is, is having the right partners is, is being in business with the right partners. And, you know, you and Tom, you know, Tommy D and Ezra have been together oh, longer I'm, I'm than I'm most expert. marriages, <laughs> longer than most marriages. We go, we go way back. Yeah. So the, the question is with, within the band dynamics, like I think band but band dynamics can be very similar uh, to business dynamics. What makes a good partner for the long haul? Like, what is it about you and Tom's relationship that has allowed it to, you know, not end up with you know one of you in the balcony heckling the other while they're on stage on MTV Live? What is what has enabled that? I think you know it's 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 trusting that that partner remembering that they're talented. And, and remembering to listen, you know, at practicing that lost art in 2023, listening, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a person who talks, but when I just shut up sometimes and I listen to my, I listen in the collaboration to my fellow songwriters or I listen to my partner, Tom, I'm usually happily surprised. Like, Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Wow. I work with you because I hired you. We're partners because I know you're good. Yet I find myself never listening to you because I only want to hear, want you to hear what I say. So when I quit talking and I listen to Tom, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. So I listen to Tom. I think we also, we've learned to know, you know, let that person have their moment, you know, um, listen to him, um, and, and just, you know, there's that saying, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? <laughs> you know, and, you know, a yep. lot of times I'm just like, okay, you know, just get out of his way, let him do his thing. I think it's just um, communication, you know, again, checking that ego, just, you know, uh, having that understanding that, that you're around someone who's really talented yeah. They bring something the best collaborations, the great partnerships are when you're working with someone who brings a, brings a skill set that you don't have yeah. or that's better than yours. You know, um and, and when when I listen to Tom, whether it's like the mix of a song, Tom hears songs differently. Tom has this different set, a skill set than I do. He's really analytical about sounds. You know, when I hear a song, it's got to hit me emotionally and 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 check these different boxes for Tom. He doesn't hear it that way. He yeah. hears it like this frequency is wrong, you know? And, and, and I'm always like, that doesn't matter. It, just, <laughs> it can be a shitty sounding song, but if it just is a great, if it's a great song, but, but when, when I listen to him and we butt heads sometimes, that's what makes our partnership successful. That's yeah. what makes the, some of the best bands. That's what makes some of the best business partnerships. There is that healthy butting of heads. Yeah. You know, because, but what, what the product is, what comes out um, and at the end of the day is great. And so many times there's, there are, there, you know, I, look, I use bands as an example, cause that's what I do. Yeah. But yeah, band and it, it, the, the aha moment for me is like a band is just a business partnership. Um, so often when that band breaks up and that singer who everyone said was the real deal goes off and does a solo album, it sucks. Because that tension isn't there, you know that. David Lee Roth. You know, <laughs> David Lee Roth. You know, yeah, you know Sorry. what I mean. So, so there's so many like you know Sting or insert so many are artists. So you know we listen. We're different. I respect. I respect him and way he sees things. Though I don't always let him know that. And I think that in, in life, you know, and also relationships. It's, you probably found that you know. It, that business, how to conduct myself in business, how do I be a good partner in business and, and for me and being in, in music, but also personally in my life, all of all, it's, it's all the same acumen, you know, listening, approaching a, a challenging thing from a different, uh, from a different angle, you know, let me, let me ask you, uh, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. When you were, when you were a younger man through these process, 
do you think you were a little greedier with 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 the direction of things a little more my way the highway a little more this and as you've gotten older you've released some of that because i know a oh, lot of yeah. the a lot of the book is into the culture of, of collaboration and i'm because i'm very much that way too like like when my companies yeah. are very young it's just like when we first started these companies that i have it's like nope my way my way my way my way my way and i find myself now 10 12 8 years later in some of these businesses we own i'm like let's just hire another point of view you know, let's get somebody else that we can get a seat that can tell me what's wrong, what what I don't see my blind spots. Well, you know, look, and everybody has a blind spot. Yeah, everybody yeah, has. Everybody a blind got one. Spot. You know, I got. We all got them. Um, you know, I think it's kind of what you were saying, John, is that ego and that drive, and it's my way, my way, my vision gets us to a certain point. Mm-hmm. It can get you really far. It can get you super successful yeah but at some point it's diminishing returns yeah. at some point you hit a wall and you plateau and i i did creatively mm-hmm. you know when i had to say i need to collaborate i need to bring other talented people in i did that uh in my personal life when i realized hey way the way i'm doing things is not healthy yeah. I'm not living a healthy way. I need to fuck. I need to do something different. I need help around me. That's when the world goes from black and white to technicolor. It's yeah. that moment when Dorothy opens the door in Oz and it goes from, you know, goes from black and white to technicolor, you know, yeah. or you take the blinders off. So, you know, like you said, you know, early in your business, early in my career, it was me, me, me. And it gets me to a point and brother, it can get you super successful in all your dreams. But if you really want to go to the next level, you got to bring in other people well, and collaborate. Yeah, as they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. As they uh, say. Exactly. As and, they say. you know, and, and if you're, if, if you evolve and you're, and you have the gift to get some humility, yeah. You know, and humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Well, I just, I, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny. Cause I see you, you know, I just, I, from, you know, we're around each other enough. And then I see you from afar yeah. doing whatever social media, whatever. And I just see, I've seen you evolve so much over the years into, into a person that just is so is so inclusive of everybody around them. And it continue, and I continue to see little things. Like, you know what I saw the other day that made me so happy? And, and it was something that I guarantee there was probably not even a lot of thought process to it for you. Like it just wasn't even a thought process, but it made me so happy. This is it. Um, you know, for years, Ezra's always been known as a three-piece. It's just, it's a three-piece. It's what it is. It's a three-piece, it's a three-piece, it's a three-piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the new marketing comes out and, the, and, and now we're four-piece. And I just, yeah. I don't think it was never, I don't think there was ever any thought process to it before, but I think it was probably just like, you know what? Jim Payne, get in this photograph. Let's that go. Was me, that was me getting my head out of my ass. I, I do. <laughs> I, know, I love that. So well, much. thank you very much. And it was way overdue. You know, originally better than Ezra was a four piece. And then our, was it? I said, lost our, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, are we were and are we and we lost our original guitarist, a good friend, Joel Rundle, and uh, he died. He oh, passed away. Yeah, and uh, and we were three piece, and then in the heyday of Better Than Ezra, it was three pieces. So in my mind, I was like, it's got to be a three piece band. We're a three piece band, even if we have somebody, you know. And I stuck to my guns e for for probably a good ten years when I should have just been like, wait a second, Jim Payne's a part of this band. <laughs> Jim, Jim, my best friend since sophomore year in high school, <laughs> yeah. is not in the photos. Stop. So yes. What what, know, what was I, that? What yeah. was that conversation like with him? If you don't mind, not not the one that the one where you said Jim get in the photo. What was that like? Uh, it was like Jim. <laughs> it, it was it was. It's happened slowly. It was like mm. you know for the longest time we'd ask, you know, we'd be doing on the road and we'd signing a poster, which was a th- th- the three of us. And he would be signing. I knew it. You know, he would let me know that it annoyed him and made him feel uncomfortable. Um, so that was on me. It was, it was me finally like, man, wh- wh- who cares? No one in gives a damn about 
it, it was this thing in my head that was com- a complete illusion that, yeah. that we needed to be a three piece that the, the public thought about that. No one cared. Look, celebrate your best friend. He's a part of this band. It means a lot to him yeah. and you'll be happy. Kevin, when you do it. So that's kind of where it was. So that, yes, that is a big deal. <laughs> I love that, man. No, I saw that and I was like, wow. I'm like, I'm so, I was so happy for Jim, but I was actually more happy for the rest of you guys. Cause I'm like, well, I'm sure in the back of your mind, that was probably something, a box that needed to get checked. And it feels good to do those things, man. It, it, it does. And, and it's also to say I was wrong. It should have happened earlier, but my, and my wife was like, what are you doing? Jim Jim. I was like, Oh, you're absolutely right. Oh, it's the Um, wife. Yeah. But like, it's never, it's never too late to say, Hey, yes, need to be right. Never too late. I I love that. So speaking of collaboration, man, the book, this is, it's a fictional, it's a quote unquote fictional book, but a lot of these stories are based on actual narrative, a fictional narrative. I was, I was very upset by the way, to read this entire book and not read about the Dungalow story. I was very upset, (laughs) but I'll give you a chance if you want, I'll give you a chance you want to tell that later. But this is about your evolution from going from a place of kind of wrapping your own arms around everything to you opening your arms to the, to the, to the world and the possibilities of what can happen when you're inclusive with other people. Um, I read the book. It's one of the books that, you know, I do this when I read a book that I like, if I like it, I'll buy 10, 20 copies and I'll just start giving away to people when I, when I meet with them and and I'm already giving. You did. And that's so cool. I just do it all the time. I I do it all the time. I do it all the time. But I, 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 that's how much I think of this. And I thought it was a great story and a great read. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know, you know, they might hear this and they might think they might've gotten to this point in this podcast and, and thinking Kevin Griffin. Oh yeah. Good. Yeah. I know that song. Oh yeah. I know better than I was blah, blah, but they don't realize that so much of what they hear on the radio right now was written by, you know, yours truly. They don't realize that. I mean, you're talking about, um, the tiger lily tequila song that's out right now, stuck like glue, glue by Sugarland. You're talking about, um, I got it. I just rattled. I mean, I just, I saw your list on Spotify, which was incredible by the way. It was incredible. You've written songs for Taylor Swift. Um, just all these incredible songs that you've written. So my first yeah. question about that is the obvious one. If you could have one back, <laughs> if you could say, shouldn't have given that one away, what's the song? I think if I could have been assured that we would have had the the um, happenstance um hit with it it would be collide yes that is that is that is my number one because i i swear you know and and howie's a nice guy but when i hear that song all i hear is you (laughs) that's all i hear that song collab by it's we've been we've been doing it live for on this train tour we were playing it people are going crazy but see this is a you know i needed to you know songs are songs are these little cottage industries every song is uh is a startup and you gotta you got to when i'm collaborating when i'm writing a song or i have an idea um i'm always like what is the best vehicle to to have the best shot at success for this song mm-hmm. you know and i have ideas all the time and I, and and i'm right and i'll be right i'll look at my calendar of okay who am i writing with this week okay i'm writing with another writer um uh, uh monday we'll write a song together that we'll pitch to an artist okay that's a harder that's a harder thing to make happen pitching songs to artists when you okay tuesday i'm writing with an artist Ooh, yeah. this song would be good for them let's say i have a hit idea yeah but the label is kind of so so and they're a little older I'm going to say this song for the Wednesday, right? With the new young artist whose label's got tons of money behind him. He's the best vehicle for this song. That's what you have to do. And you don't always get it right. You know, so going back to Collide, um, it was 2005. Ezra was on our third label. We weren't with a great label. A ballad type mid-tempo song needs a, a very strong label behind it with money to continue pushing it because ballads are harder to become make hits because they take more spins. Yeah. But once it happens, it becomes huge. So I was like, Ezra's not the vehicle for this. And and Howie Day was 18. He was the bit he he had been in a bidding war. Epic had won the deal. They had tons of money at the time. That was the person to take the song to the finish line. It turned out to be right, even though ultimately it was a complete fluke that the song became a hit. So that's, those are those things I had to do. But yeah, so Collide was that, was (laughs) like, the one you want back. 
I wish it was an Ezra song. Yeah. And now, because you know, we'll release it. We'll, it, it will be, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, now it's it's funny. Uh, you know, I walk around my house and my daughter just won't stop singing the tequila song. And it's, uh, and dude, it just, it's nonstop. That's a, it's a it, great track. It's so great. That it's song started on a cigar box. It's called Shoot Tequila by Tiger Shoot Lily Tequila. Gold. Sorry, I just called it Tequila it, song because Roman oh, yeah, no, stop saying it. And and uh and it look, it's it's blowing up. I am look, it's like number 40 right now on the country chart. I hope it hope it continues going up. Um it's just a silly, fun, it's a it's a it's a song that comes off when you sound it. Oh, this sounds stupid, but it's a very smartly written lyric that I wrote yeah. with the girls. It's a four-way write. Um, but it started on a cigar box guitar. It's a three-string guitar. It's an it's a actual cigar box that's mm-hmm. made. It was a gift from Sugarland after Collide. Um, right, yeah, for Stuck Like Glue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every song, it, it, having a hit is so hard to do unless you're Pharrell, you know, or, or Ryan Tedder. You know, most of us, you know, swing and miss more than we hit. So when I have one, I'm super grateful. Well, let me ask you this: Is is there a pattern recognition involved when you when you're dealing with songwriting? Are you looking for like with trends, like with business? What I do, it's pretty simple yeah. to to monitor trends, you know, mirror what's working, and just trying to replicate what's what's out there and improve on it. Is so when you go into the songwriting process, are you looking for those patterns of what's happening now? Or I know there's a little bit of that in the book, but is that something really that you're doing? Well, or? I, it really is, you know, and and you know the kind of the book, um, the book was. I started doing it, it, for the people listening. I started doing these speeches, you know, to YPOs and then to companies like Salesforce and Nike and Disney about um, the tools that I've used in my in my business career to to um, stay successful as a songwriter, stay engaged and inspired and relevant. And then my aha moment was like, wait, all these tools I use are the same for every business, but I can talk about them in a music sense that people find interesting. And that's when I did, I came up with the business peril. I told a story about a struggling songwriter to your, to your question. Uh, one of the things I talk about is um, filling the well and knowing the business of your business. So, you know, there, there are a thousand great songs written every day in Nashville. Many of them could be hits and there's probably a thousand great business ideas every day. But, but what separates, you know, where the rubber hits the road is, do you have the knowledge of your business or like you said, the trends to get it across the finish line? And in music, like a lot of times I'll have somebody, a songwriter, he's complaining like, man, I'm writing great songs, but I'm not, I'm not getting any cuts. And I'm like, well, okay, what's the last song you wrote? Oh, I wrote a country song, you know, I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> give me, name some songs in the top 10. And they're like, man, I don't know any of it. They all suck. You know, I'm like, well, name, name, name Oops. a producer that's hot. And, and at the end of the day, I'm like, wait a second. You're trying to compete in a, in a current business and you don't know what you're competing against. You yeah. don't know what's happening. You don't know. You don't read the trade journals or listen to the podcast like, you know, your podcast, Escaping the Drift, <laughs> to know what's happening in your business, to be able to connect those dots. And in the, in the music business, like any business, it's like uh, the Queen's Gambit. You know, you've got to be able to see the moves. How do I get from a great idea to the finish line? So I'm always reading Hits Daily Double and Billboard, knowing, you know, listening to Spotify New Music Fridays, you know, and and if you there's those three dots out to songs in Spotify. If you click on those three dots, you can scroll down. And it says credits. Mm-hmm. I look, I'll be, I'll be listening and I'll be in the gym working out. And I'm like, here, I hear a song. I'm like, oh, that's a rad song. Then I, I click on the buttons and I see the songwriters. I'm like, and more times than not, like, I know that songwriter. Yeah. And I hit him up. I'm like, yo, I didn't know you were writing with Harry Styles or this yeah. new artist, Ray. She's this, this UK artist. And then they're like, yeah, dude, we're writing next week in LA. Show up. I'm like, yes, I can. Or I, or I, I, or I find that, an executive I knew um, at Warner's is now at Sony where I could never get any, you know, any success. So the point is I'm always looking for trends where the executives are, what's happening with my peers. Dude, you know, you know what I love about what you just said? This is what I'm gonna tell you. I love about what you just said is if there are places you want to go or rooms you want to get into, you know, a great way to make that happen. It's like, it's what you just said. It is congratulate the people that are going there already. 
You know, dude, so many people will look at like, like, well, why did that guy get that speaking gig? Why is he on that stage? And they'll be like, they'll hate, instead of, they'll hate on him. Instead of that, take two seconds to be like, bro, I saw you're speaking at, you know, 10X was Grant Cardone. That's fucking amazing. Good for you, bro. That's awesome. Yeah. Proud of you. That's awesome. And then whoever's having the event, hey, I saw you just booked my friend, you know, Mike, whatever. He's amazing. You're, he's going to crush it for you. And all of a sudden, now you're in the conversation. So simply by you're, saying, dude, I heard the song. I love it. I didn't know you were doing this. Now you're in the room too. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and to that point, I love that. it's embracing the success of your peers. Yes. Because ego wants to say, screw them, fuck them. I had that idea. You know, your ego says I'm better than them. Your ego says there's nothing to learn from them. It's about me. But when you just check that ego yep. and you say, and you know, you go, oh, fuck, that song is so good. You know? And then you, you congratulate, you reach out, you congratulate them, you know, or you study what they do. You're like, well, what makes that idea? What makes that song good? Oh, and you, and you do, rever you reverse engineer a hit, yeah. which I talk about in the book. And, you know, what are the, what are the parts of that idea that's crushing? That's amazing. And you, and you break it apart. You know, some of the people, you know, we both have a friend, Robert LeBlanc. Yeah. You know, he, he has a lot of very successful restaurants down in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. One was a James award-winning restaurant. When he's not at his restaurant in the kitchen or at the, uh, at the host station, yeah. he's at his peers' restaurants, seeing what they're doing, finding out what the competition is doing, you know, embracing them, you know, and, and I'll go to shows, I'll go to music shows, because my wife work as an executive for Gibson now. Mm -hmm. I'll go to an artist that maybe I wouldn't go, and 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 I'm watching, and I'm like, that's a great thing to do live. I'm stealing that idea. Yeah. You know, so, so when I embrace my, my peers and, 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 and cheer them on, you know, then like you just said, suddenly I'm in the conversation or connecting people, you know, sometimes, you know, like, I know I want that right. Or I want that in, but a lot of times like, you know what, these are, you guys are two great people that I love in this business. I'm connecting you guys by via text. Yeah. Take it from here that i love that i connect the dots i love it man i love that it comes back and also just conducting yourself selflessly sometimes and and you know karma it's real you know if, if you put that out it comes back you, you know you know what i think is funny man and i think that, that the two things kind of go hand in hand because because ego is such a huge part of what you talk about in the book and i talk about all the time i find that people that have the biggest egos haven't tried anything new in a really long time like, oh, yeah. for example, yeah. for, for example, like, you know, we got, we got, a, we got a house at the beach, uh, now two years ago. I told my wife, my whole life, I've wanted to learn to surf. It's what I just, my whole life have wanted to be a surfer. And dude, I suck balls. I mean, there are days when I almost drowned out there. You know, I, I went out with Noel, a couple, Noel, my friend, Noel Bowman, a couple weeks ago, who's a really good surfer. And it was a little too big for me. And yeah, I almost drowned. It was not good. But wait, wait, where, where, where are you in Cobb? Are you in California? I, I'm also in Newport beach, right? Right on the peninsula. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Four houses off the sand. It's great. And, uh, right by Blackie's. So that surf break. And, um, <laughs> and dude, but I tell you, nothing keeps me grounded more than getting out there and looking like a complete jackass. Yeah. So I think if you're somebody in your life that feels like you're stuck or you're always unhappy or you're mad, a lot of that's just because you haven't tried anything new in a really long time. What, what is, how, how big of a, not just from the business point, but from a self psyche point, like how big of a, of a premium do you put on constantly trying to evolve? Oh my gosh. It, it, that, that that's one of the biggest things in my life is, you know, on so many fronts, I've got to continue challenging myself and doing stuff that scares the shit out of me. Yeah. You know, that's the only way that I, that I, create new neural pathways in this brain, mm -hmm. you know, by challenging myself, um, by, by, you know, again, I talk about it in the book, you know, leaving your comfort zone, you know, when, when you're, when life is in flux and you feel off balance, that's often when you're at your most creative, you know, I have spent my life on stage, um, as you know, you know, and I've played in front of audiences, a hundred thousand, I've been on TV to, to millions of to people. Um, 
And seven years ago, I started doing, you know, uh, speaking events and usually they're much smaller. They can be, now they're bigger, you know, they can be 30 people or 3000 people. But when they started, they were for YPOs and WPOs and they were usually about 60 to 80 people. And the third speech I did, it was in this uh, room at the House of Blues. It was a private room at the House of Blues in Dallas and it was to a YPO group in Dallas. And it was during Pilgrimage Festival and I had not prepared for the speech um, and it was all still very new. And it was also terrifying because I'm used to being on stage with my guitar and doing my little, little quips and then suddenly, you know, you know, and then I'm into a song, but doing a full speech that can be 45 minutes to an hour long. It's a whole other thing. Yeah. I went into it. You know, you're shut. You're nodding your head. Cause you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I went into that speech and I started speaking I, I started to, uh, it's, and within 45 seconds, I started losing my, I couldn't catch my breath. And I started, my voice started quivering on stage speaking. I had the first panic attack of my life <laughs> and it was terrifying. <sighs> it was embarrassing. I had to stop you, you, people who have had a, you know, and I, oh, I equate that to weakness. A panic attack make, makes you, it means you're soft. You didn't go I'm like full Will Ferrell and old, like where you blacked out and just did the speech and don't even remember it. Like you got through it. <laughs> I had to stop. I had to stop. I was like, and I went and, and I'm, and when I'm telling you this, I'm right back there on that stage. And I was like, Whoa, I'm really nervous guys. Hold on a second. I got to stop. Let me catch my breath. And then someone in the back said, you can do it. You know? And then I was like, all right. And look, this is a crowd of people, you know, who've sold their business. They're all very successful people. Yeah. And they're, and, and, um, someone said, you can do it. So I, so I just, I was like, all right, you know what? <laughs> I'm starting over. Yeah. And I got through that speech and I ended up getting all these other speaking gigs because of that speech. But I'll tell you what, because it was real, I guess it was authentic. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. It was good. I don't know. But I went back to my room at the W Hotel in downtown Dallas, and I was like, I'm never fucking doing that ever again. That was terrifying. It was the worst because I was it was new. I was leaving my comfort zone. I wasn't prepared. Um, and it was like you almost drowning on a surfboard. You yeah. know, fuck this. I'm not meant to do this. I'm I'm 50 years old. You know, you don't need to do that. But that but you know what? Two weeks later. I was on that stage again, you know, but this time I was prepared. I, 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 I knew what I was going to talk about, you know, and then I knew like that, 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 you know, that, that a panic attack was out there, you know, if I wasn't prepared, yeah. but the point is if I hadn't continued doing the speaking, it, it, it wouldn't have been a, a turned into a really great fourth or fifth career for me yeah i would have never written the book well let's talk let, let's talk about let's talk about look because you know yeah. it's being in a band songwriting all of those things the risk is nobody buys your stuff you don't make any money but let's talk oh, yeah. about the biggest risk you that i know that you you take in the music business which is pilgrimage festival because oh, yeah. that was absolutely financially swinging it out on the end of a limb and starting a chainsaw between you and the tree. It was, uh, it was, uh, a, a, that was a brave move, my man. And so let's talk about pilgrimage festival a little bit. And, uh, and let's talk about that. My hometown. Yeah. A friend of mine who's an entrepreneur said, dude, you don't shit in your own nest. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you, and I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you're starting a big music festival in your hometown. And, and, I, it didn't, I didn't understand what he meant until a couple years later when we were almost broke. Um, yeah. you know, our night, our, our belief in ourselves and our complete cluelessness about what we were truly embarking on was a, was an asset, yeah. you know, had we known what, what a financial, um, liability it was it could be and was going to be we mm. probably wouldn't have done it you know when you start a music festival you have to you, you really gotta you gotta make people remember your festival so you yeah. you, you end up overspending um i would have done a lot of things different a lot of things differently well, but, i mean to, to give some color to this to the folks that are listening we're not talking about like the neighborhood banjo guy gets up there and strums we're talking about foo fighters we're talking about the biggest bands around uh we're talking about Chris, justin timberlake we're talking about chris stapleton we're talking about the biggest names that you can have on these stages 
It's a big yeah, festival. So, it's a big deal. So year one, we lost our ass. Yeah. Year two, we lost our ass. There were moments when I was lying in bed, like we've sold tickets to everybody I know from the mayor on down. And we don't have money to pay our deposits for the staging, the sound and the artist deposits that are due tomorrow. I mean, things like that, like I'm going to be run out of town, but yeah. every time things just worked out, you know, that we, I was, and, and my wife was, God bless her, was like, you know what? You always figure it out. It's going to work out. You're, you guys are doing, doing something amazing. It's going to work out. It always did work out. Yeah. Um, our third year, man, you know, just, well, you know, well, just talk. well, like Cody Go Sanchez, ahead. like Cody Sanchez is a great entrepreneur. She's awesome. She says her dad always says, you know, about entrepreneurship, you're not in the game until it's the middle of the night, your head's in your hand and you have no idea what you're going to do. You're not in the yeah, game exactly. until that moment. You're not in the game. <laughs> you're not in the game. No, you don't know until you're just like, <laughs> this is, we're going, I'm on the Hindenburg. And we're going, <laughs> we're down. going down, baby. You know? You know, and it's terrifying, but also really exhilarating, you know, and one thing about pilgrimage, um, and, and I kind of said this earlier, you know, when you're doing things, when you're around great people and you're checking your ego and you're listening and you're, and you're living, you're practicing what you preach, things become serendipity starts happening in your life. You've probably seen this when yeah. I'm doing, a, when I'm doing things right, all these things conspire to help me yeah. and you know, and it's amazing. And I never would, I would have called bullshit on it. Have I not seen it happen in my life many times? And pilgrimage is an example of all these things happening, the city, getting the land, t suddenly jogging at the day after Thanksgiving north, which I never do and finding myself out of this beautiful farm mm. in the center of Franklin, Tennessee, where we started this, this festival, you know, Justin Timberlake moving to Franklin, Tennessee and me having a meeting with his best friend about an artist that I was publishing that they wanted to manage. And then me having the presence of mind going, Hey, you know, would Justin be interested in doing pilgrimage with us? And you know, all yeah. these little things. So year three, um, we had Justin Timberlake play and we made money for the first time. Year four, Hard not, hard not to make money with that guy. You know, I know. <laughs> that guy's right? got a following. <laughs> you know, but, 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 but we paid off all our bills. Ah, you know, a lot of people like, in the black, baby. Crushing. Like, oh, you know, when everybody thinks you're just crushing it, like, like, no, we're just paying yeah. off the old debts. Yeah, pay you no know, attention uh, to the bills behind the curtain. <laughs> oh my God, nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that's that's an old. Uh, uh, that's the second Wizard of Oz yeah. reference. So I'm, and I'm sure you put all of these bills on the Discover card from LSU, right? Oh, yeah. All, all oh, of yeah. them put oh, on yeah. the Discover all, card. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know where I, I, I asked. I was doing a speech the other day. I was like, is Discover uh, even a thing? Like, I don't yes, think it's it a thing is. anymore. Is I, think it? It, I think they were a sponsor of oh. the event I was doing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, look, pilgrimage has been this thing. After our triumphant third year, we got rained out and we spent six months battling it out with an insurance adjuster who yeah. finally, you know, paid up. But it's it's a labor of love. Um, this year we've got Zach Bryan, the Lumineers, Black Crows, Nathaniel Rateliff, uh, Head in the Heart, Better Than Ezra. The band I'm most excited to see, Black Crows. Yeah. Uh, you know what's you know what's wild? Listen to this. I, this is this is wild. I'm gonna I'm gonna share something. Wild. I'm gonna try to show it to you because I'm gonna see if you can actually see it on the screen. I don't know if you're gonna be able to or not. But uh, so we went and saw a couple of weeks ago. Me, Noel, and my son. Uh, we were we were down in Newport, and we took a took. We went up to L.A. and we went and saw Love and Rockets at the Ace Theater, right? Because they love were it. touring. Because I I love Love and Rockets. And sitting right in front. I just gotta show you this photograph. <laughs> Oh my God. Because this is an amazing photograph, but I just got to find it. Hang on. Uh, but sitting right in front of us at this place, hang on one second. Let me find this. Give me one second. Ah, man, you never know how many pictures you take until you start scrolling back. And, it's and like, then we have, the, you have okay. those friends who know where every photo is. I know. I'm like, All right, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Here we go. So here's the photograph, right? I'm going to try to show it to you, see if you can see this. Can you see that? Right. Uh, I see the back of their head. Oh, that's Marilyn so Manson. That, so Marilyn Manson is sitting right in front of me. Now I'm going to zoom in on the photo a little bit, three rows in uh, front of him. Can you see who that is? Yeah. 
tell who it looks like mike mills it's, from REM. it's chris robinson from the black crows oh shit <laughs> so, so in one photo i've got marilyn manson and chris robinson both sitting right in front of me That's at love and rockets amazing. at da theater I, how random wow. is that um you know love and rockets were that band that they had their moment but they were really uh, a, a, ba- a, a, ba- a musician's band that, you know, we uh, musicians love, love and rockets. I mean, we used to cover no new tale to tell. Yeah. That was know? the, that was the first concert I ever went and saw without parental supervision. I went and saw love and rockets play at the rights union Gainesville for $5 with Jane's addiction opening. There was 80, oh. there was 80 people there. <laughs> I was 15 wow. years old in Gainesville, Florida. I, that's a, that makes me think that's that's an amazing bill. Yeah, I saw Dave's Addiction on the first album in at Deep Ellum Live in Dallas in 1989, and it was yeah the amazing. best. Well, let's it was so decadent and sexy and cool. Well, here we go. You don't have to tell you don't have to tell the Dungalow story, but here's what I do want to know. For, for I want one your favorite story from the road that can be told in less than 5 minutes. What's the story? Well, I mean, the Dungalow story is pretty great. Let's have a Dungalow story for a little tell it. Well, the Dungalow story, <laughs> we were this was 2005, better than Ezra played uh Star 98's Halloween bash on Santa Monica Boulevard right there in the in the heart of uh West Hollywood and we were all staying at the Chateau Marmont the decadent Chateau Marmont you know and we that you know I think actual Halloween night was on a Sunday night that time on that Saturday night um Ezra played um our show and then afterwards um, we went, to, I think we were hanging with Lindsay Lohan and DJ AM. He was DJing in the bar at, at, at Chateau Marmont. And then we had to go play uh, a show down in, uh, Orange County, but we came back for actual Hollywood night, uh, sorry, Halloween night, uh, at Chateau Marmont. And we, and our, one of our good friends, um, Michael Whalen, <laughs> would you mind being named? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter now. I'm not beeping it. <laughs> he, he had a, he had a bungalow. At um, the Chateau Marmont, and the bungalows are, are these amazing chalets on the on the property of the Chateau Marmont. That's where all the stars stay, and it's by the pool, and it's super cloistered and very, very romantic and sexy and very Hollywood. And we had a party there, um, and and a good friend Hugh Hayden, we were all staying in there. And at some point around 1:30 a.m., Pete Wentz showed up, and he and a buddy they were dressed like like Luke, uh, like Owen Wilson's character from no Luke Wilson's character from Royal Tannenbaum's. They were both wearing matching red, uh, sweat outfits and white headbands. Yep. And they were there and I went home. I went home cause I lived in LA at the time. And the next day I, I called up my buddy, Mike and, and, and he was like, dude, how was the party life? And they were like, Dude, it's not. Don't even talk about it. I'm like, what? Because you don't even want to know what happened. I'm like, wait, what? What happened? They're like, man. At some point, uh, I'm trying to get into my king size bedroom, and the door's locked, and we can't get into the bedroom. So we get our friend. She climbs in through the bedroom window, falls into the bedroom, and she starts going, "Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god!" turns stumbles finds her way into the bedroom turns on the lights and it's a terrible story someone could not get make it to the bathroom so decided in this two thousand dollar a night bungalow at chateau marmont to take a dump (laughs) in the bedroom and then track it through the bedroom and crawl out the window and disappear into the night. Our investigation has always zeroed in that Pete Wentz from Fall Out Boy was the culprit. So we renamed the bungalow, the dungalow after that. And when I bring that up to those guys who lived through the horror, and the, and the worst part was the hotel was sold out that night. So they had to spend the night in that <laughs> in <the> <laughs> and it was just a, yeah a, that is a, that is a dirty uh rock bar 
all Hollywood story. Tales and from like, the road, boys and girls. If it gets back to Pete Wentz, of course, we don't have any direct proof, but we're pretty confident <laughs> he took the yeah. shit in the room. It's an assumption he took a shit in the room, but it's not not definitely a thing. So let's do the thing where we try to tell people how to find you. Because oh my god, it, it, this this is going to be like the longest. How do we how do we find you in history? So first of all, brand new record out on on Spotify, Apple Music, everywhere it can be spent from Better Than Ezra called Mystified. You'll want to check yes. that out. Spin that if they want to find you and follow you on Instagram. Where is that, Kev? It's Kevin. Yeah, uh, sorry, it's Kevin Griffin Music. Is it? Wait a second. Let me wait. Hold a second. Because KevinGriffinMusic.com is my website. That's where you can okay. buy the book. See tour dates. Kevin M. Griffin is my Instagram site. Okay. And then there's we are Better Than Ezra. So that's all things better than Ezra. Right. And then there's the book. You can buy it off. You can buy it directly from the Kevin Griffin Music site. You can get it. Amazon, Kevin, everywhere. You can get it from kevingriffinmusic.com, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can do Kindle. I would say the Audible book where I voice all the different characters, including that's what I Dan, Daniels. <laughs> And Breeds Kanuka, he's from Barbados. I do all the voices. It's been for two months. It's been the number one music business audible book on Amazon. That's awesome. So I'm really proud. I'm proud of that. I've been dude. I'm proud of you. Print book. So uh, the, it's doing really well. Um, and I'm I'm hoping to get a a Grammy nod for best spoken word. So awesome. we'll see. And one last and one last one. Uh, Pilgrimage Festival. If they want to uh, go to the festival, how do they buy tickets there? Brother, I love it. Uh, Pilgrimage Festival is September 23rd and 24th. It's in Franklin, Tennessee. It's 18 miles from downtown Nashville. Go to pilgrimagefestival.com. Again, Zach Bryan, Lumineers, Head in the Heart, Nathaniel Ratliff, Black Crows, and James Bay, Better Than Ezra, and many, many others. And let me tell you something about it. As somebody that's been to that festival several times, uh, the town of Franklin is like the coolest little it's like mayberry uh, but with like michelin chef restaurants it's like it's I so mean, cool garden and guns southern living yeah. uh, uh condé nask continually say it's one of the best small towns in the country such and a cool place such cool yeah, brother. kevin brother thank you so much man i appreciate you doing this i'm sure our listeners got so much out of this and i appreciate having you and i will see you soon right love you pal you will see me soon and hi to the family all right guys <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us for another episode of Escaping the Drift. Hope you got a bunch out of it, or at least as much as I did out of it. Anyway, if you want to learn more about the show, you can always go over to escapingthedrift.com. You can join our mailing list. But do me a favor, if you wouldn't mind, throw up that five-star review. Give us a share. Do something, man. We're here for you. Hopefully, you'll be here for us. But anyway, in the meantime, we will see you in the next episode.